0: Think about how many thousands of people you've met in your lifetime. How many are acquaintances? How many are friends? How well do you know any of them? I'm your host, Steve Waxman, and I want to get to know people a little bit better. I want to find out about the journey they've taken in their lives to get to where they are today. These are my conversations with human beings. Have you ever noticed that when your friends travel abroad, their social feeds fill up with photos of them standing in front of public art installations? You can bet that the locals take these art pieces for granted. Glass artist David Pearl has been creating public displayed artwork for decades. David and I got together for our conversation at the 407 subway station north of Toronto, the site of one of his most public works of art. We're
1: just here looking at the artwork for a few minutes. I did the artwork here in the station. Can we just go in there and come back out? We're not going anywhere. Okay, thank you. Thank you. They took them a very long time to. uh, start to select an artist or start working with me and they kind of said well we've got these meetings next week come to a meeting next week and I actually spent the weekend painting with acrylics on glass on the upper deck of the place I was staying because it was summer and just photographing them while I kind of spread this color and I'd put layers of color and layers of color behind so it was never ever a dry painting it was always just this fluid sense of wet paint, which I still, which I wanted it to kind of have, like it was that immediacy of just being done as a brushstroke. Right. But I never thought, when I brought these ideas to them, that it was anything other than tentative first steps before st- spending quite a bit more time on it. Mm-hmm. So I brought these ideas in, and they went, "Great, we love it." <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you love it? I hardly started. (laughs) So essentially then we got locked into this idea that this idea there's a sort of notion in architecture that architecture starts from the hand starts from drawing. That's the first move in architecture. So in a sense the last move became a work by hand that gesture of of the hand, the sweeping gesture of, whether it's maybe the train speeding through or it's just the hand writ large in the architecture, but it's a sort of notion that everyone was sort of happy with, you know, you worry because a lot of architects are afraid of expression in architecture, they like, most of the stations I think have this notion of, let's keep it, you know, keep it architectural, keep it cool, keep it, Let's not, let's not stick our head above the parapet artistically. So what they had been quite taken with in my work before was where I was creating pieces that were animating architectural spaces with light. And the notion of some of those pieces aren't that there's anything to look at. There's only the effect on the space by the movement of light, of the sun coming up different angles, being very low in the winter, being very high in the summer. and that. But in this case, There was no denying the fact that there was an aspect to look at as well as that. So I knew at that point it had to have something to look at, but there wasn't any sense that it was going to be a picture, but it had to be some way to achieve the kind of color that I wanted to project, but in a graphic presence. So that's why I went with this. process <clears throat> now what nobody knows is that to work with it's not like digital printing digital printing doesn't illuminate it's simply uh, uh an opaque presence on whatever it's printed on uh, but this is actually enamel frit it's liquid it's glass in a liquid medium that's finely ground so it's actually enamel frit which in which is done on all kinds of buildings there's little dots and stuff so you don't walk into it manifestation and because I still wanted it to look like it had this surface of liquid paint you know we had to it's it's basically I had these photographs I took of these paintings this size let's face it this is a huge thing to blow up to the scale it's 45 meters wide And they have to, in a computer, uh, generate this at some point as a full-size piece of art that's 45 meters wide at something like 600 dpi. So you've got huge, huge files that have to all be separated into pieces of film for each panel. And every color has its own uh, film to make a halftone screen. And each of them are printed. And then each of them have to be laid out next to the other to make sure there's color consistency, one panel for the other. So basically, considering then all the works, they spent about 18 months making. Making this, Because there is...
0: Uh, 18 months making
1: the artwork? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, if you look over okay. here, follow this down. See, what you can't get now is the fact that this here, all this, by being kept transparent and casts, you know, I can send you pictures or whatever, but two weeks ago when I said, just casts, lines of colors, that'll all... You can tell a little bit now that that actually looks orangey. Yeah. This looks yellowy and looks blue, but that becomes intense sweeps of color when the sun comes down. So all we'll do is go down and come back up. Okay. So we'll see from below. The idea being is the is the impact that this is intended to have, like down here. So that I think it's the only uh, subway station that has natural light at all available to a subway platform, unless they're the ones that are above ground. Yeah. So. Um, the idea is you sort of color, because everything else is gray or is stainless steel, the, the colors should pick up on everything. Any, all these surfaces are just picking up colors from the windows. Eh? So it becomes becomes not just a fixed into the material, but it becomes part of a projection device into the other surfaces in the building. Um, so that's the only way I think that you truly get completely integrated artwork that's part of the architectural language which has always been the background of my training in this kind of field is that it's it's an extension of the architecture into an artistic expression that should find something between that combined resonance of being art and architecture that becomes a single statement I guess did we want to do anything else there? Do you want to go back up there, or are we finished in here? I think we're finished. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. They should sell coffee in there.
0: So let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up, and how did you become interested in art?
1: So I grew up in rural Niagara area, Ontario, you know, just in that sort of... Beamsville, Jordan, countryside. But I kind of always knew I was going to be an artist. I probably missed a tremendous amount of schooling through drawing, through my own, probably a lack of attention. Because then finally, I think when we moved schools into Stony Creek, you know, I was like, I hadn't learned anything. I had to, in a year and a half, get caught up to the end of grade eight to go to high school. Just because I would go through hundreds and pages of drawing. My father would bring paper home every day. I just drew all the time. Um, So... And my parents never saved any of the drawings because I can remember them, and I wish they had saved some. <laughs> you know?
0: what, what, what What were you drawing?
1: I would I would draw narratives a lot, you know. So there'd be one kind of picture led to another. I I drew profiles of heads with heads full of rooms a lot, and things going in, on inside the rooms. I would have liked to see some of those now because I can remember doing that over and over. Um, but and then despite the fact, you know, in the family there were sort of lawyers and various people, but I went to art school, so I just went to Sheridan. Then I did the sort of uh, year off in Europe, the Middle East and India kind of thing, because it's the early 70s, and that was a... Lot of that going on, um, and and on the way back from India, I just sort of had this notion. I knew that s- somebody I'd I'd known that taught art in high school had gone on to teach stained glass in Sheridan, and I just thought, I'm, I'm you know I'm gonna I really feel like working now. So I'll go and study stained glass in Sheridan. But you couldn't just do stained glass; you still did the painting, the printmaking, whatever. And um, uh, somebody came. A guy named Robert Jekyll came to uh, to talk about what was happening in Europe in in the contemporary world of, of stained glass, which was people in Germany building very large-scale projects, post-war reconstruction, mostly still in churches, although I virtually don't work in churches at all because... There aren't any new churches being built. But, of course, we, Germany was being rebuilt. So there's a tremendous amount of artwork going on in the buildings. And I thought, wow, this is great. You can have a whole building. <laughs> the whole building can be your frame. But it was an exciting, big-scale stuff. So I went to study in Wales, because at that time, there was a really notable course called you know architectural glass or something where you uh, and people came from all over the world there. There were Americans, Canadians, Greeks, Malaysians, Australians, quite an international group of people came to the school in in Wales to study contemporary applications for glass and um, I Thought I would probably come back and work in Canada, and there was a lot of going backwards and forwards between Canada and Britain. And because I was actually born there, my parents emigrated to Canada. I always had this; I could always stay and work there, as well as work here. And there was a kind of taking off in the field of of public art and stuff. The, this at ad, the advent of of the notion that a certain percentage of money towards buildings would be put into artwork for the buildings started in there started in Britain before here mm-hmm. and that was a springboard to actually getting getting to do some projects so even in my Late 20s, early 30s, I was getting some big opportunities. That 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 project that we talked about on the telephone for uh, Missing the Abbey, which is called an abbey, but had been in private hands for a long time and it was becoming a, a, a residential school at that time, was, I was still quite young, competing against very established people. But there was a kind of notion that, you know, there was something new happening and uh, people wanted, uh, wanted, wanted some... Uh, Fresh blood, I guess, coming into this kind of work. So basically, from that time... Uh, from 1983, when I did my first public commission in a center for uh, uh, European studies in North Wales, where as an artist-in-residence, I survived from my work, really. And because of the fact that nobody would say they're going to give you X thousands of pounds or X thousands of dollars for your artwork. But when it's being built as a component, as a freestanding component, or as a part of the architecture... It's understood that there are costs involved to produce materials and ship things and that you're spending a certain amount of time. And so it became quite legitimate and quite ordinary to have reasonable budgets, to be paid properly and have a reasonable budget for what you were doing. And it would never seem like, what, I'm not paying that. It was all like accountable. You have to have engineers, you have to, you know, you have, to have everything. So it was a good training because then later um I went on to do a masters in architecture in London um uh, studying with uh, a really quite famous uh, pop architect named Peter Cook who who had all these fabulous ideas in the 60s <clears throat> that for inflatable buildings and pop-up buildings and mobile buildings and he really influenced a whole generation of people like um that not influence them; he taught them people like Zaha Hadid and Daniel Libeskind and and Alsop, who did the school, all were students of his, and then I was a student of his at the very end of his professor, uh, being a professor in London. So that that comp- that finally complemented that notion of being uh, knowledgeable enough to work in the milieu with architects and engineers, and in that fabrication kind of field. So that was a compliment to that fine art starting out in Sheridan in the first place.
0: I mean, when, I, when I've when told people over the course of the last couple of weeks that I was interviewing a glass artist, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, thought more traditionally with regards to stained glass and, you know, the lead, the lead yeah. outlines and whatnot, or at best, realistic paintings mm-hmm. on glass. Mm-hmm. So my question is, what led the style that you've developed
1: I guess I never assumed anything else other than the fact that it could be a contemporary art parallel with anything else that was happening in contemporary art. I didn't see any reason. It had to be in some little siding on a minor line on the outside of town that didn't really go anywhere. I always thought it could be, you know, a properly expressive contemporary mode of expression. Now, there is a kind of challenge to that notion if something is, is attached to something, like it's in a building, maybe it's not real art because it's not like fine art in the sense that it's not a painting in a gallery. That's quite a recent notion of what constituted fine art, I think. If you look at, in a sense, Western art to me is founded as a tradition through the Catholic Church as a patron. All that art that went on in medieval times through the Renaissance when there's either a combination of the Catholic Church and the Medici's or whatever. And a lot of that artwork, even right through the Renaissance, uh, Donatelli or Michelangelo or whatever, they're all working in architecture. They're locating it in a specific site in the building, and nobody ever says, well, that's not art, Michelangelo. (laughs) It's on the police ceiling. (laughs) So I don't don't accept the notion that it, it, it can't be an expressive form. So... In that sense, you know, the building the buildings change, the buildings have a new language. And the notion that somehow or other to work traditionally is means that you copy some some tired style from the Victorian era is no it wouldn't have been a tired style when it started. It would have been innovative. I always think traditional work is to do with constant innovation. Rather than this copying of some style Figurative style. So, um, and the interesting thing about working with enameling is it was first introduced in something like the sixteenth century to stain stained glass. They discovered that they could have uh, liquid or applied enamels to fire it on the glass. In some ways, it's not any different than that.
0: So you keep you keep calling this liquid liquid glass.
1: Well, no, it's it's all an it screen enamel work, which is enamel frit, which is a finely ground glass in a liquid medium. That's finely ground enough to be pressed through a silk screen, I work with printers in the same way i'm <laughs> not comparing myself that to how uh Picasso or any uh uh, Andy Warhol, whatever would have used silk, but it 's all the same. It's silkscreen printing it 's doing films and printing it 's just printing with the material that can be fired into the surface of a glass and become a permanently fused layer with glass. I can only think of
0: how there are people that look at what you 've done here some of and some people see it as art, and some people who walk by it every day don't really. Pay attention to them, but as I think I said to you on the phone, and as I said to my wife after I came from here, it's like it's you know it's like the people in Vancouver who have the mountains there, and they you know they sort of take them for granted. As an as an artist, uh, are you are you conflicted at all with regards to how people interact with your art because of it being environmental as opposed to what people more traditionally think of as something hanging?
1: <laughs> well, people are, are probably people ignore art hanging on the wall as much as they would ignore any other art um, and familiarization makes you ignore something but what's interesting about your mountain analogy is you could sort of see a mountain in the distance every day but one day suddenly there's some weird light effect and, you, and it wow wow, that looks amazing so this tries to tie into that wow amazing kind of light effect so that maybe one day something that you've never ever seen before is happening that might reacquaint your attention whereas for the most part painting is 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 shown and seen in a in in a consistent properly white light balanced or whatever kind of kept away from too much natural light that might damage it or whatever so um it's a very important consideration for sure when you're doing it
0: one last question would be where do you find inspiration?
1: Oh. Well, I probably find most of my inspiration in the natural world. Now, um, in the sense that I find the natural world more continuously rewarding than an urban world. That said, I, I do mostly only go to visit places for the architecture I, I really like architecture and so i do go to see architecture and i don't rely on pictures of a building to have any impression of it i i think you have to see a building and so i love architecture so um but i probably and so i will get some ideas or influence from that but i think really my strongest interaction is with the natural world and phenomena that I encounter in the natural world. But I also tend to think that a lot of the natural world is incredibly abstract if you stop interpreting it into information or identification. And and so I do have a body of work as photography that I've done and I've been involved with a, with a few books. and. I'm really interested in taking a completely straightforward picture of something that you can't tell what it is. Because if you disengage from identifying all the time, there can be quite unusual encounters in the natural world, particularly in terms of light or water or sky or things, and I don't mean sunsets, but just phenomena. So I suppose it comes from that really, although I don't tend to work directly from that other than as photography. So it's hard to see that that would come from that, in some ways, in my glasswork. Because then, when it comes to a building, I'm more interested, probably, in the phenomenal-ology of, of light in space.
0: I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with David. Before you go, I hope that you'll follow or subscribe to Human Being for more conversations.